Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Red Sonja of Oz returns to fantasy. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I'm looking for my co-host. I don't know where he is. Adam! Where are you? I am Adam Thomas, but for some reason, in this episode, I'm the same guy, but a different name. So I am fandom... Ron, I don't know. I lost the joke. <laughs> Was there a joke to find to start with, is the question. I mean, it, the source material is the joke. <laughs> For sure, yes. Um, and we have a guest returning today. Uh, this is a guest we haven't seen in a long time. You might remember her from way back when we did our musicals episode, way back when we were just hitting double digits of episodes. Uh, she has returned here with her pet chicken. It is Miss Caitlin Turner. Caitlin, how are you doing this evening? Well, all I can say is there's no place like Double Edge, Double Bill. Oh, oh, we are really home, aren't we? <laughs> That's the secret all along. It is um, like Dust Bowl, Kansas. <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah. Welcome to the Double Edge, Double Bill again, Caitlin. And I know I wanted to have you on for this because uh, we're returning to the world of fantasy films, which is a topic we've covered before, but I know you are a pretty big fan of fantasy, especially since we're doing this right before Game of Thrones comes back for its final season. I know you like to actually not just watch fantasy films, but read books about fantasy? What? I don't know if you could put read as what I do as so much as devour books as you know. Uh, but no, I'm a huge fan of fantasy movies, fantasy books, fantasy games. Pretty much that anything that isn't reality. And who could blame you? <laughs> Especially in this day and age, escaping right. to that fantasy. Who could blame you? Um, but today we are covering two films in the world of fantasy. We're interestingly covering two films from 1985. The summer of 1985, these two movies came out two and a half weeks away from each other. So there was a point where you could have gone to the theater and seen either our bad pick, Red Sonja, or our good pick, Return to Oz. Though that was a, probably a small window, considering both these movies did not perform very well. Yeah, right, exactly. Like one <laughs> Sunday. Um, <laughs> you, you know what else is pretty funny that I noticed, Thomas? One of the actors from our good pick was in our bad choice last episode, and one of the actors from our bad choice was in our good choice last episode. Well, well go on, pray tell, who, who? Ernie Reyes Jr. was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as one of the stunt workers. Mm -hmm. And Nicole Williamson was in Spawn, and he's in uh, Return to Oz as the Doctor. Yep, the, all, the, all the connecting threads are all here for us. But let's go ahead and uh, we're going to discuss our bad feature first. Usually we do a good and a bad feature, um, but we're going to reverse it this time. Uh, and we're going to start with Red Sonia. Her courage was forged out of fire. Her destiny to become a glorious new hero. Red Sonia. Only one man on earth is man enough to win her. I make it a rule never to take a woman unless she can beat me in a fair fight. Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Why not? Brigitte Nielsen. So, Red Sonja, based partially on both the uh, Robert E. Howard character, but also the Marvel Comics character a bit. It, this is an attempt from producer Dino De Laurentiis to do a follow-up to the two Conan the Barbarian movies that came out in the early 80s, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he technically couldn't get the rights to Conan again, because this was done outside of Universal. So he decided to, as Adam kind of obliquely referenced earlier, kind of feature Arnold Schwarzenegger in a smaller supporting role, since his asking fee had gone up quite a bit since Terminator made him a breakout star. Yeah, he's Kalidor. Yes, Kalidor, as opposed to Conan. But, Caitlin, you were talking off mic that uh, you're actually a fan of the source material, right? Not, not so much the Howard books, but the Marvel comics, right? Yeah, the, the, the Marvel comics. The Howard books, oh boy, there's a, some issues there. But no, I, I definitely enjoy the Marvel comics. Uh, I grew up with Red Sonja through the Marvel comics, and even Conan through the Marvel comics. And, um, uh, the Gail Simone, of course, is my favorite interpretation of her, where they just basically ditch the vow of chastity and basically just say, yeah, she's a badass in her own right. Would you say this is a faithful adaptation? <laughs> uh, not really. They kind of tried, but they uh, basically lost a lot of stuff. Also, there was no lesbian evil queen. Yeah, it seems odd that they decided to kind of make the lesbianism sort of the linchpin for her villain here. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. It's, it's, it's a bit weird. We'll, we'll definitely go into that. But you know what, uh, Adam, uh, yes. were you, you, this was your pick. So um, were you familiar at all with the Marvel comics or just more familiar with this because it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger featured vehicle? Actually, both. I read the books as well. Um, I actually had a box set that had all the Conan books. And some of the Red Sonja books in them. And then the Marvel comic was written by Roy Thomas, which actually happens to be my dad's name, who used to tell us that that was actually him when we were kids. And we totally believed it. What? You used to work for Marvel? But, uh, you know, then it turns out he just lied (laughs) about everything. Yeah, I was familiar with all the source material. And I actually saw this movie, too, at quite a young age. I picked it because I remembered really hating it then. So that's why I wanted to pick it. I'm like, well, maybe we'll see. And man, do I just, I hate it so much more now. Well, I hadn't seen this before. I had seen the earlier two Conan movies. And I actually rewatched those prior to watching this, just because I hadn't seen them in a very long time. And uh, I think we can all agree the first Conan the Barbarian is pretty dope, right? That's awesome. It's fantastic. It's it's very dope. (laughs) I mean, just James Earl Jones is like, you see that boy? That is power. Amazing. The best you could do with like a sword and sandal movie, I would argue, is what they did with Conan the Barbarian. And I did rewatch Conan the Destroyer. I remember hating that a lot more when I was a kid, because uh, it is definitely a step down from the first Conan. I don't hate it as much now. I think it's definitely a downgrade, but at the same time, I think yeah. it has engaging sets and also a few cool monsters in it, and even a few bits of Arnold Schwarzenegger early comedy that are. Not great, but at least kind of charming in their affableness. This I hadn't seen before, and um, it's directed by the same guy who directed Conan the Destroyer, uh, Richard Fleischer. And I don't hate this one either, but it's still even more of a step down. (laughs) Because especially the first 45 minutes of this movie are incredibly sterile and kind of boring. (laughs) First 45 minutes? Oh man, I'd say the first hour and 20 minutes until you get to the credits. 
There's <laughs> this movie is so fucking boring. Now, can I ask? You watched the first two Conan movies first, and then this. Yeah, it was a sort of a triple feature, yes. Oh, okay, because I was curious if the reason you got the appreciation for the second Conan movies because you watched this one. A bit. Um, no, that, that's also a bit, too, because yeah, at, at yeah. least that one has some cool elements to it. It's not a good movie, but I can definitely say um, it isn't as on the cheap as this one is. Because aside from the villain lair, um, they are mostly shooting in the woods. Mm-hmm. It's definitely clear that Dino just had Arnold on contract, and it's like, hey, Arnold, we want to use you. Great, what do I do? How about an awkward kind of sex metaphor sword fight with Bridget Nielsen? That's, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I don't know. I, and, you know, it's pretty bad that 1985 Bridget Nielsen, which, you know, is a worse actor than 1985 Conan. Or, I mean, Arnold. Well, Conan, you can call him. Hey, I will defend her. This sure. is her first ever film. That's she true. never got into this. She was literally brought in because they said, oh, hey, this model looks like an Amazon. Throw her in here. See, yeah, I, I don't think she's necessarily terrible as much as, like, I just feel so bad. She feels like a babe lost in the woods. Like, she doesn't yeah. know what she's doing. It's so, I just felt like, oh, Brigitte, I want to help you. <laughs> just, I want to get you out of these spotlights. You need to train a bit more, and then you can be in stuff like Beverly Hills Cop 2. Another shit where you're a bit better. <laughs> You're probably right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. Just, I'm not, I didn't think of it instantly as, oh, this is her first performance. Because she never really got much better, if any. So it's just, it's another Bridget Nielsen performance for me, who I, I always think has pretty much always been bad. Except for maybe like Rocky Four. She just got pigeonholed in a lot of things. They expected her to act a certain way, and they never really taught her otherwise. Do we know she didn't have any kind of acting coach or anything? Yeah, like, that's pretty much been said in every one of her interviews for the most part. And, like, this one, she literally got taken off, like, a modeling gig, pretty much, and thrown into a movie. Yeah, especially because, like, they hired her only, like, a couple weeks before production started. Because they were, like, building sets and doing all sorts of stuff just a few weeks prior to actually casting her in it. So it was very much felt like a pressure job from what I had heard. And plus, even if she isn't the best actress, I agree, she has a lot more confidence in those other roles. When I see think of Virginia, yeah. I think of like a strong, tall, confident woman who doesn't really give two shits about what any man has to say, which is, you know, it's not the best acting range, but at the very least, it feels like she can do that decently well. Versus here, she just feels very awkward in a way that feels like once again she was just kind of thrown into the front of the camera and told to dance and she can't quite do it because <laughs> they didn't give her enough time to prepare and then she married Sylvester Stallone and all is right with the world well uh... and had a relationship with Flavor Flav <laughs> that wasn't the only thing that was going on during the filming with this she was screwing Arnold Which I would was... be screwing Arnold during the filming of this. did you see it? Uh... I would say this is around the time where Arnold looks buff, but still in, like, a human way. Human way, yeah. This is before the steroids hit. Right, when we get to, like, around Terminator 2, which is like, you're just like a statue. I can't fuck a statue. Which (laughs) is crazy, because the steroid you stopped are right around Terminator 2, in all honesty. I mean, if you look at, like, Pumping Iron Arnold compared to Terminator 2 Arnold, it's like he's half of that size. It went very weird. Yeah, because he got more, like, gaunt in the face. Man, I just, I've always been an Arnold fan for some reason. Not necessarily Arnold off screen, but on screen I like him. Except for this movie. Uh, I don't understand what happens in this movie. Honestly, it was 
the fact he wasn't supposed to be there for most of this. Well, he was supposed to be Conan. Well, here's the thing. Even with, like, I know you've read the books and stuff and even the comics, Conan goes by different names when he's traveling. So this, I can just be like, oh, it's fine. Eh, whatever. You're still Conan. You're just going by a different name. But what I mean is he wasn't even supposed to be there for this long. He was literally supposed to be, like, a cameo. Right, and they stretched out a lot more. I think what it was was he was supposed to be a lot more, like, in sort of the final set piece of the movie. And then they just had, like, pickup stuff that they shot while he was still there. And they, they did sort of, like, the Beetlejuice trick, where Arnold is probably only in about, like, ten minutes of this movie, but they stretch it out enough to where you feel like, oh, he's, like, a supporting character. Even though he's definitely barely in the movie, technically. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. No matter what. Well, I mean, he was only supposed to be there for, like, one week of shooting, and then he ended up there for four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dino De Laurentiis not <laughs> kind of, like, to snide people a bit, kind of like play loosey-goosey with that contract, for sure. At the same time, there, there are other people technically in this movie. Like, I will say, I think Ernie Reyes Jr., for example, is annoying, obviously. It's kind of in the short round mold of annoying sidekick character. I will say, once we get to toward, like, the ending of the movie, where he starts actually doing some sword playing stunt work, this is the kid who would later go on to be actually a really great stuntman. You can see that in him as he actually does, like, pretty good physical acting, yeah. even though he's not a great actor by any means. <laughs> I mean, there's points where he's doing the flips and the sword work, and, you know, if I didn't know any better, I'd be like, is this like, are they pulling a Lord of the Rings on us? Are they using force perspective? Is this actually just a normal-sized man? (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, dude, he's, what a little badass kid, and he grew up to just to be, God, he's such a, just a master of martial arts. It, It was fun seeing him. I'll give it that. You know, acting, no, but I liked the idea of his character. So that worked for me. However, his like right hand man who was Bluto and Popeye, I'm like, right. okay, yeah, right. What is this? I don't know. I kind of liked him when he especially actually gets the chance to do some stuff, like when he drops it on the dinner party bit, and he's like, "How's the food?" and then uses a giant bone to beat people. <laughs> I thought that was no, kind of okay, fun. I'll give you that. I think honestly, like that's the thing is, it's a movie where it is mostly boring, but once we get to that second half, I think there's still some fun stuff that pops up enough to where. I don't hate this movie, and more importantly, Arnold has said many times, like, oh, this is the worst film I've ever done, I've threatened my oh, children God. to watch Red Sonja. No. This is no. not the worst This is not the worst he's ever done. I no, could name at least far. ten other bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that are worse than this. Yeah, I'd argue Hercules in New York, his first movie, is his worst movie. Or Junior. Yeah, I would go more Junior. Like, the really bad comedies are the ones yeah. that are the worst. Yeah. I can't say I hate this movie as much as I might have alluded to. It's just so blah for me. It's very forgettable. This is the ultimate biggest sin, right? Like, I watched it yesterday, and I'm literally sitting here going, was the queen a lesbian? I don't even feel like it. (laughs) Well, they didn't come out right and say it because it was the 80s. But literally, it's got her touching her, like, kind of seductively. Her little slave girl, she makes sit next to her. and Yeah. You know, when only women can touch the... uh, Deus Ex Machina. And Red Sonia calls her a man for some reason at the end. It's like, is it because she's a lesbian? I don't... I don't Did she? Track the li- yeah, Red Sonia says, like, but you are a man. You will succumb to this. I'm like, wait, is there something I missed? <laughs> I guess it, literally the only thing that comes to mind, it's because she likes women. And it's like, really? That makes her a man? I'm like, uh, apparently I'm a man then. What the fuck? Right, and, and we were talking about it off mic, Caitlin. That, that doesn't quite help with the sort of backstory. 
it doesn't like (laughs) also you don't need that like inserting the rape thing into a pg-13 scene like you did not need that little imagery yeah it was for a brief second but adding the whole lesbian thing adding the whole other problematic parts of this movie it's like this is the 80s i agree the rape didn't need to be shown but i think for what they were trying to go with with the character it worked but yeah you didn't just see it i mean here's the thing you don't need to insert rape to make the character well no yes no i agree with you i don't think rape should be used as a a perk or whatever you want to call it in in any case i I think it's a horrible cheap tool to sort of use to be like oh now she was got to get it back you know whatever the fuck but honestly if you watch which i'm assuming both you have all of these types of movies in the 80s there was rape and uh, that shit. I mean, they were literally just following the formula. Oh, I know, but that doesn't yeah. make it right, and I'm still not going to like No, no, it. I, I completely agree with you. I guess, yeah, by that logic, it is not one of the worst offenders. Like, I was so worried last week when we were picking our movies for them. Like, don't make it be like a Deathstalker or one of those other movies that just features... Dude, Deathstalker, Beastmaster. I mean, or... Deathstalker's probably the worst. Yeah, but... yeah it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This That's isn't egregious just... by far, but it's still not... It's still not fun. There's, for no reason, a gratuitous nude scene in this movie. Yeah. For what? There's also, like, a head decapitation, too, that's just, like, this This is basically a kid's movie. I really don't get why we're having, like, extreme decapitations yeah. or I don't know why nude scenes. I think, literally, they just wanted those scenes to up the rating and be like, oh, it's Sonya. We don't have her in her chain male bikini, but here you go. She's nude. Well, I, I that might have been the case, but I think it was also... You know, a very early example of like dads can bring their kids to it, but then they put some stuff in there for you too. It's bullshit. It, yeah. it has some okay sword fighting scenes, and it's not awful. It's just not I'd argue, though, good. Of the worst sword fighting scenes ever is in this movie when it's from Sonya's POV for some reason. When you first see her fighting the guy, like training. Yeah. And it's just a hand sticking in front of the camera with a yeah. sword in it. And it's clearly a dude's hand. Yeah. The, the stunt double for Red Sonia looks at least like 30 pounds heavier and I think is a man. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised. Definitely a man. And I think that's why they did not put on the chainmail bikini. I will say there are a couple funny bad moments that are in there. Like my favorite being the bit where they're all outside of the castle at the palace and they keep saying like, no, I can't go in, I can't go in, I can't go in. And they cut over to Ernie Reyes Jr. who's just silent and then I'll stay. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious or also when arnold has to use himself as a support beam for the crumbling castle later on and he has to like put himself up like let me put up on my shoulders well i mean he's you know he's arnold bro what wouldn't you expect him to do that i guess and, and then of course what i referenced earlier the the, the single shot on the moment where i really was just like feeling so bad for bridget Nielsen, where she's like jared where are you <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Hilarious. So <bad>. <laughs> I love it, it the Evil Queen's like gaudy phantom in the opera mask. That <laughs> was really dope. I mean, this is just this is just such a disaster. It's not the worst movie, but it's so haphazardly and half ass made. Yeah. Even the set design where it's like, uh throw some skulls up there. Ooh, spooky. It's like they don't really do anything else with it. 
It's just like some shitty red room. Like, this is just... I get what they were trying to do, but just such a colossal failure. There have been several attempts to do a remake of this movie. Robert Rodriguez was trying to do one a few years ago with uh, Rose McGowan, and that fell apart. We almost had one with Brian Singer, and thankfully a lot of things came into play that would not get that movie American distribution. I really Uh, wonder why. I know, I'm I'm not sure at all. Um, But, Caitlin, could you see maybe them doing a better Red Sonja movie? Honestly, they could easily do a better Red Sonja movie. Get Gail Simone to write the script. She literally reinvented the character, took out a lot of the problematic aspects, and made her a badass in her own right without the help of a goddess. There was no rape. None of that. Just, Who would you just, cast? Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people. I, I would say, if you could get her to dye her hair, I'd go Gwendolyn Christie. She'd be an older Red Sonia, but I'd love it. That's interesting. Yeah, well, Brienne of Tarth. Because, yeah. yeah. well, I mean, if you want to talk about Amazon, that is Amazon right there. And she's a good actress. She already knows how to sword fight. Just get her to dye her hair, have her be an older Red Sonia. We're good to go. Well, we talked about someone a few episodes ago. I wouldn't mind Gina Carano having a chance got... to do that. Fuck you, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that could be a perfect vehicle for someone like her. Mm-hmm. Someone who is already a trained badass. And I, I think that would be good because she's, let's, I mean, Gwendolyn Christie is more well-known, too. It'd be a good good chance for a total unknown, not total, but almost an unknown to take a, you know, a lead role. I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think Gina Carano would be my choice. She'd be a good pick, too, yeah. I think this has the potential to be a really sort of powerful movie in today's climate, like a redo of this movie. I think they could really do something sort of special and make a point with this story. Why it keeps failing to get off the ground, I mean... Part of the reason is they don't want to, A, cast the right people, and they don't want to get the right people for the job. Robert Rodriguez is right for several movies. This was not going to be one of them. I think he could do, potentially, do something with Red Sonja. I'm not saying he'd be my choice, but I think he could do it. I mean, I, I would have agree- I would have maybe disagreed with Caitlin more if they didn't have the idea of, like, let's get Brian Singer. Even in a post-Wonder yeah, Woman world, yeah. announcing a Brian Singer feels like a shitty idea. I wouldn't mind I just... also just getting, like a, obviously, like a female director who might be... Yeah, that's really action. what it should be. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to say guys can't do this film. They can. That's not the case. But you need the female perspective. Yeah, you You do with somebody as badass as honestly bring in some of the women who made Red Sonia the popular character she's become. Like I said, Gail Simone in particular rewrote the character, breathed new life into her, and made her popular enough that they were really talking about the second movie. And it was starting to get off its feet until (laughs) Brian Singer. But we've gone a bit far off from the original Red Sonja movie, so let's go into our final thoughts, then you can tell why we kind of decided to do this first. So it's like, mm. let's get this out of the way. There's a whole other movie to talk about extensively in a bit. Uh, so, Caitlin, your final thoughts on Red Sonja 1985. Not trash. Not good. Worth at least one watch. Okay, Adam? Uh, I'd call it trash, but okay, trash. You don't need to watch it. <laughs> It's not good. I definitely agree. You will be 
go in and out of you rather quickly. It's nothing compared to the earlier Conan movies, even Destroyer, which is saying a lot, because that's not a good movie either. Um, but it, it's a curiosity in terms of sort of the careers of some of these people. And I think as it goes along, there's a few set pieces I found fun. Like, the we didn't talk much about, like, the weird water monster and Arnold trying to fight it, but I thought that was kind of a fun sequence. It's a machine! We have to blind it! <laughs> yep. Um, and then some of the stuff, especially I think in that big cast finale, is charmingly bad in certain regards, including, uh, we didn't mention him either, um, the guy who's like the right-hand man of the evil witch lord, uh, Ronald Lacey plays him. That's the guy who got his face belted and had like the black overcoat in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And oh my god. You can't tell because he's like an albino here I compared can't tell to all. Right. Um, but he gives good scream face when he's like getting completely crushed to death. Uh, he gives a good scream face. There's stuff like that that's like kind of charmingly fun to where I don't hate this one. And it's definitely, as we mentioned, not nearly the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Arnold needs to reassess some of his especially more recent choices. Uh, uh, fuck Genesis. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, but he's coming back for another one, so let's see how that one goes. Terminator Dark Fate. Best title. It's going to be terrible. I'm calling it right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's probably not going to be good. Um, But that's a discussion for later in the year. Until then, uh, we have another movie to talk about, and uh, this one is a bit more interesting. It is the 1985 as well film, Return to Oz. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz. This is the Oz you haven't seen before. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. Return to Oz. So Return to Oz is... Technically, a sequel to The Wizard of Oz, as yeah, much as you legally can be. Right. <laughs> right, because uh, this is done by Disney as opposed to MGM, which was interesting because around the time that Walt Disney himself was trying to do a follow up to Snow White, he tried to buy the rights to the Oz books, but couldn't since MGM just snatched them up. And so later on in the 50s, he did buy the rights after MGM let him lapse because they never did really any kind of follow up to that movie. And he tried to make sort of like a late 50s, early 60s style musical out of it, which there is a video, if you can find it, from like an old Disneyland special where he had the Mouseketeers perform the musical numbers. It was going to be called The Rainbow Road to Oz. And I love hearing the story that apparently as those numbers were being performed, Walt was watching and then quietly went to his office and called his development executives and said, shut it down. And you can tell, if you see that video, it was going to be very similar to, like, what he would later do with Babes of Toyland, if you've ever seen the old 60s one, which is, like, less of a film and more of, like, a variety special with dances and musical numbers, which isn't what the original Wizard of Oz movie is, necessarily, but it also wasn't quite this movie, which, after Walt died, the rights still stayed with Disney and they needed to keep them, so they decided to make Return to Oz... Uh, and hired Walter Murch to direct. This is his only film that he directed, but he is an Academy Award-winning editor and sound designer for a few notable productions like all three Godfather movies, Apocalypse Now, The English Patient. Nobody remembers any of those movies. Flash uh, in the pain. Exactly. Right. Yes. 
this was his chance to direct a film and was sort of famously a disaster at the time because a lot of people sort of had more of a comparison to the MGM musical as opposed to this being much more faithful to sort of the original L. Frank Baum books. And Caitlin, I know you are a fan of those books and this movie, and you can speak to the fact that this is a lot more faithful than 1939 film that we all know. Yeah, this is way more faithful to the books. It's actually um, basically two of the books combined into one. It's the sequel, The Marvelous Land of Oz, and then the third book, Ozma of Oz, combined and mishmashed into one form. And in fact, you told me, Caitlin, a few days ago before we uh, recorded here, that uh, you actually saw this movie first when you were young, right? Yep, I saw this one when I was like, for the first time, four years old. My dad wanted me to shut up about Lion King, so he's like, here, just just watch this one, child. I know you'll love it. Just shut up and watch it. And I did love it. Got fucked up in the head by it, but still loved it. And I actually didn't see the 39 one until I was probably 12 or so. So many years later. And you were telling me you were a bit confused by that as well, given you'd seen this. It's like, how come Dorothy looks like 16 in the first movie versus this one where she looks legitimate like a nine-year-old? Yeah. Well, not only that, but even then, by that point, I had read the Oz books. So I was a little confused why they were all singing and certain other choices. And I'm just like, okay, it's a great movie. I like Return to Oz better. For me, Return to Oz is one of my favorite films and probably one of the ones that have had the most influence on me. That is a hot take for you, ladies and gentlemen. And I think the experience I had was a bit more traditional in which I had seen the original Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. The first Wizard of Oz was one of the first movies I remember being obsessed with as a child where I would watch it all the time. I had that clamshell VHS that was like the 75th anniversary or whatever. And I watched that movie a lot. And I loved that movie so much. And I remember my dad telling me at one point, when I was probably around six or seven or eight, that, um, hey, you know, there's a sequel to that movie that came out, like, a while afterward. I'm like, oh my god, it's more stories with Dorothy and the lion and the scarecrow and all that? Great! I gotta watch it. Because I had been aware of the books. I had read the first book um, a little bit later. Um, when I was probably about middle school or so. And what's interesting is when you actually go to the the source material, it is a lot more dark. There is a lot more sort of, like, dark elements to Oz as a world and what Dorothy and her friends have to face. And as a kid, um, this one definitely emphasized a lot of that because, you know, everything starts off and it's like, well, this is sad. What's happening in Kansas with Dorothy and Aunt Em and Uncle Henry and then things keep going along. It's like, oh, wait, like, the Scarecrow is gone, and all the people are turned to stone, and there's terrifying elements everywhere? This this obviously is kind of an infamous movie for a lot of kids being terrified by it, who grew up around, like, our, roughly in our overall age group amongst the three people here. And, in fact, Adam kind of teased at the end of the last episode that he Uh was quite terrified by this as a child. Go into that a bit more, Adam. Well, all right, dude. Okay, first of all, <laughs> they're going to electroshock a little girl. <laughs> yeah, and the electroshock machine looks like it's smiling, and I'm just like, don't right. look like you're smiling, no. This is his tongue. Oh, that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> then everybody's stone. 
There's a chick who just changes her heads whenever she wants. There's a bunch of decapitated heads. The wheelers were terrifying as a child. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, oh my god, are they horribly annoying? That main wheeler. Oh, five seconds into him talking, I'm like, okay, please God. And then there's just something inherently creepy about Fruza Balk. She creeps me out. Always has. Always will. I don't but, understand that. Especially here. She's just a little girl. Doesn't yeah. matter. I can agree. You're not me. Doesn't matter. <laughs> from, from, yeah, from craft onward, I definitely agree that I think Fruza Balk has sort of a, a weirdness to her. To be fair, that's kind of why I had a bit of a crush on her when I was younger. But anyway. Oh, everybody did. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> she is she is one of those ones that was like oh you had a crush on her so did everybody in this she'd probably world. hit you and, and, dude it's just it's creepy and then lightning bolt burned down the asylum the doctor didn't make it out you killed him dude what <laughs> awful awful sleigh they build with like a disembodied whatever gump head like <laughs> Get the fuck out of here with this. I do think the Gumphead just started screaming in horror at what he was becoming. Kill me! Kill me, please! <laughs> Literally, he's just like, I don't feel very well put together. I'm just like, you're not. I could fall apart at any time. Oh my god, that means he can feel what's going on to him? Oh, yeah, yeah, he can good. feel it. <laughs> he's completely self-aware. I don't know, but he doesn't seem to feel pain at the same time, because, like, when he falls, he's like, whoops. (laughs) Well, I guess maybe it's just because the furniture was built fairly well. That's true. I mean, it looks well-manufactured. The the couch itself, the wings, no, the couch itself looks well-manufactured. Well, it hits a fucking mountain, and then it hits (laughs) Okay, well, the little girl manages to gracefully plop on there and live, so I think the couch is very well-made. By the way, would have exploded that couch in her tailbone. I don't, look, I don't, I will not hear any more of this decrying of Munchkin Land manufacturing. I think it is phenomenally well built. I think those Munchkins worked very hard to get that couch as good as it was. Elves got it one up on him. I mean, let's be honest. I I will just say, I do love kind of seeing the cover for this movie, because it shows the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and you're like, oh, they're maybe in this for five seconds of the movie. That mask is straight out of a fucking horror movie. That I, mask is a good job. No, I I kind of agree with Adam that I think it's it's more terrifying. I think because they choose to keep the mouth open and they kind of move it. They don't commit and the to fully. Eyes don't blink. Well, right, that's true. There's that too. It's it, it it's not even that. It's not that they don't choose to move it. It's literally that they basically ran out of funding because this was the time when Disney was in turmoil and they were already having problems. Like at one point, Walt Murch got fired from the film and literally like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and a couple of his other big director friends had to come in and t- basically say put him on put him back on right now yeah, sure he made enough sense of that this is the movie that all those guys would fight for well I think it's less that they fight for the movie and it's more fighting for him and not only like, like I said uh, I was saying with Scarecrow, they started to run out of funding and budget. So one of the cuts they made was that's why Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, and Scarecrow are only in here for such a brief time because they had to cut them out due to budgets. And the face itself, instead of being changing all the time, they literally just made like two or three reaction masks. And that's what we see. 
that's why his face doesn't really change. Apparently his reaction is to give us nightmares all the time. (laughs) I would argue he is the most terrifying, just because it's like you mentioned, he is just a completely wall-eyed, doesn't really move. He's just like, Dorothy! Well, right. I, I mean, we'll get into Mombi and all that, but, but don't that does... worry. Go to sleep. I'll stand here and guard you. My eyes won't blink, though. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from Scarecrow, I actually really like all the designs for these various different characters. I think this is a masterful special effects showcase here in all varieties where you've got, yeah. I would say, like, Jack, I think, is an interesting creation, how they combine sort of the guy in the suit with the very thin armature puppet. Or with TikTok, which is really interesting. TikTok is fantastic. Yeah. TikTok is brilliant and give the person who actually puppeteered him a fucking Oscar. Because finding out what he had to do to make TikTok move hurt my body and soul. (laughs) Literally bending over hands and the feet and like walking backwards the whole time. That's just a nightmare. Yeah, Michael Sundin credit to him um he was literally upside down to make so his hands are inside of the legs which is mind-blowing uh considering especially how awkwardly he moves but in a way that works great for like a sort of steampunk kind of robot mm-hmm. creature i love the i agree i love the design of that i i also um really love how even like the gump as we're mentioning i think he has so much expression in life in his face and a lot of the special effects people worked on this would go on to do a lot of stuff. Like, particularly, the voice of the Gump and one of the lead people who, like, designed all the animatronics is Lyle Conway, who the next year would do Little Shop of Horrors, which is the best, I would argue, practical effects movie ever made. Well, not only that, but actually several people in this production went to go work on several beloved films, not just this one. Uh, you had Brian Henson... Who did Jack Pumpkin? He's the son of uh, Jim Henson. He went to go work on Little Shop of Horrors after this. He also did Labyrinth. Stephen Norrington, who directed Blade, is one of the wheelers. Yeah. Sheen Barrett uh, also worked in Labyrinth. And um, Denise Brayer, who uh, did Bellina, she was the junk lady from Labyrinth. Right, so you got got a lot of really talented practical effects artists that do an incredible job, especially also with, we've mentioned her obliquely, but um, Mombi... Um, who has, like, these various heads that she flips between. Um, I, I love the idea of that character. I, obviously, it's terrifying if you're a child. Just literally Mombi's original head screaming, Dorothy Gale! And just all the heads screaming at once. It's, like, the most terrifying scene yeah, in the dude, movie. That's fucking nightmare. It was great. Not when you're four years old. I watched it when I was four years old. I screamed like a little bitch, had nightmares, and still loved it. Well, I screamed like a little bitch, had nightmares, and hated it. So... (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was a kid and I watched this, it's sort of like that terror you have when you're a kid of horror movies, but you're still fascinated to keep watching them at the same time. Like, I was watching this through sort of like my hands covering my eyes, but at least two hands were open so I could see out of one eye. Basically, because mm-hmm. it's so fascinating, just this world that they build and how many t- tremendous, like, sort of sets that they have and all these different special effects creations. And at the same yeah. time, I think they it also comes from, like, sort of a weird emotional sincerity that I was surprised by, especially watching it this time. Because I feel like Dorothy, along with all these other creatures, have so much life built into them that comes from sort of a specific place that I think any child can relate to, of, like, that awkward stage where you're 
sort of fearful of the future and start to recognize that authority figures aren't always in there to help you and that they also can be kind of human. Like, Dorothy's going through a lot of that when she's obviously in Kansas and seeing, like, her aunt and uncle are completely desperate and have no home, really, and they are worried about her future and about her mental stability. And as things keep going along, I think the other Oz characters do a great job of reflecting sort of her anxieties and her worries about abandonment and desire for responsibility, but a worry about it at the same time. I think that's what works so well is that there's a real weird, like sort of emotional sensitivity that I think carries throughout this whole movie and is even presented through these creatures. And I think there's, there's such a great sort of through line here that I think makes what on its face could be, I think a very clumsy, awkward movie in terms of its construction feel a lot more sort of emotionally tethered than I would expect it to be. Well, not only that, but I think Farouja Bulk just brings, like you said, such an authenticity to Dorothy. Judy Garland, God bless her. I love her. Her performance was great. Farouja Bulk actually made Dorothy human. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes Adam the Gnome King to rain on our parade. (laughs) He's stealing our emeralds. No, no, no. I mean... You know, that's that's your opinion, and that's everybody's opinion, and everybody's entitled to their own. I found her terribly wooden and dry in this movie. Not for me, I guess. I, I could not get behind her at all as Dorothy. I did not find her relatable. I, I'm a grown man now at this point, but I did not think she gave a good performance at all. I, I thought she was terrible. Comparing her to Judy Garland is an absolute travesty. They're very different performances. And that one was good. Um, oh you're right adam you're so right i gotta find toto (laughs) i don't care well that's our opinion yeah no that's fine you can have your opinion that's perfectly fine but honestly i think feruza bulk did a fantastic job i really felt for her and i really related to dorothy in this now can i ask thomas were you the same yeah, honestly, I, I really like Farouza Bulk's performance here. I think I can agree that it's not necessarily as showy a performance. It feels a lot more sort of introverted and a lot more like a child who's gone through a lot of shit and is seeing not just in like at her home where everything's falling apart, but also in the Land of Oz, everything's gone. Everything's <laughs> has been completely turned to stone. She is in a world that she once saw as a safe haven that's completely destroyed and how that mirrors her own life in Kansas and how that's completely dismantled as well. I think she displays a lot more sort of like sort of wounded bird syndrome also, almost with the way that she kind of walks around in Oz, but at the same time, a sort of desire to keep going just for the sake of her friends. And I think that especially comes through with something we haven't mentioned yet, but I think the Gnome King is one of my favorite villain characters in a children's fantasy movie ever. I think, uh, as played by Nicole Williamson, and also, big credit to um, Will Vinton's stop motion effects in here are phenomenal. I think Absolutely this is, phenomenal. This is some of the I best stop... Stop motion effects, yes, that, that was fantastic. Just the way that they display, like, sort of, especially the gnome uh, sidekick characters and their facial expressions on the rocks, I think are some of the best examples of, like, facial stop-motion animation. And then later on, as the gnome king sort of goes from being a rock face and slowly becomes more human as each of our heroes are picked off one by one and turned to ornaments, I think they do such a great job of displaying the fact that the gnome king is totally, like, gaslighting our heroes throughout all of that. 
where it's just like, oh, well, hey, you, you stole all the emeralds. Like, well, they were originally mine. They took them away. But the Scarecrow wasn't the leader when that was happening. Well, I need to get back what was mine. Are you trying to take what was mine away from me? And all this other stuff. I think Nicole Williamson does a great job of playing that, especially when you consider, like, his other version of himself is the evil, you know, shock therapy psychiatrist who is totally trying to speak down and demean Dorothy as a character. Mm -hmm. Here, also, he's totally doing that Nas, and even, at one point, gives her an out. Dorothy, you can just, we'll make you forget everything about Oz, and you can go back home to Kansas, and none of this ever has to be spoken of again. You you don't have to go out there and risk yourself, because who cares about these people? You just met them. There's, There's no point in going out there. But she decides to go anyway, and I think that shows such an interesting strength of character for Dorothy. Yeah. Who has her been facial so... reaction during that scene was really good as well. Like, mm-hmm. you could see her debating that choice. Because part of her does want to go home, because she's being threatened with being turned into a freaking knickknack in a pawn shop, basically. Yeah, Only that, but... A pawn shop or Dust Bowl, Kansas. I'm taking knickknack every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're not wrong. Adam is, turned to a green cup like, worth it! <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it's also just the fact that she's also wanting to go home to her family. Yeah, her family hasn't been treating her the best, mostly because they don't believe her, but they still love her and she loves them. And it's a scary choice, but she decides she's going to do the right thing, even if she's freaking terrified. And you can see the debate on her face for a moment, even with the Nobe King's fabulous shoes sticking out of his, like, robe. Just him with the freaking ruby slippers is hilarious. But, but Adam, do you agree with any of that, especially about the Gnome King character? I think he's an interesting character. I think the uh, I think he's well acted. I think the... Uh... Stop motion is fucking really fantastic, and I do like the idea, like you said, like he's gaslighting them and everything. Out of out of the whole movie, the Gnome King is probably my takeaway as my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's a really really well fleshed out character. He also gaslights Mombi as well. At one point, when things start going wrong, Mombi points out, "Why didn't you?" You have the power. Why didn't you just go ahead and turn them into friggin' knickknacks? And he's like, oh, this is more fun. And then Dorothy gets an answer right. She gets the scarecrow back. And then suddenly it's not, oh, this is more fun. It's, oh, this is your doing. This isn't my fault. It's all you, Mombi. I love how that's done, especially in that one shot, how he keeps even going, like progressing very quickly back to like stop motion. I think it's yeah. another great example of, like, the excellent effects work there. And then when he becomes, like, the giant mountain monster Gnome King, that's the image I remember being most terrified of. Oh, that was honest. terrifying. Yep, because just like, he's a giant fucking kaiju monster who's about to eat Jack. Funnil- yeah, funnily enough, I... turns into yeah. a skull, I'm like, holy yep. fucking shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Funnily enough, I started carrying around eggs for a few weeks just in case. You know, you got to use it sometimes. My three-year-old and my wife both sat and watched this with me and were transfixed by it. But, hey, I mean, it does speak to people do really like this movie. I honestly can say that I think my biggest disconnect is, for some reason, I'm unable in my brain to not see this as a sequel to the original. And I don't know why, because the original was such a huge part of my childhood, and I love it. Especially when the when the first one isn't really 
even that good of an interpretation. You don't talk like that. And I mean, just a translation of the book. Even. No, you're right. It's not at all. I mean, I mean, it's a loose interpretation. But oh yeah, it just it meant a lot to me as a kid. And oh yeah, it, I get that. You know, so it's like watching this one. I'm like, they're fucking it up. That's why this failed at the box office. Was so many people were like, oh yeah, this is more faithful to the books, but you're not being faithful. Right. That was the sentiment a lot around the time. Was just like, oh, how could you bastardize what Oz was? Which. To be fair, even when you watch that The Wizard of Oz movie, there is still, like, stuff that people always talk about how terrified they were as kids of, like, Wicked Witch, Flying Monkeys. The Flying Monkeys dismember the Scarecrow. Oh, yeah. they ripped the shit. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I love how they actually touched on the Tin Man's OG origin here. Literally, he just started hacking pieces of himself off until mm-hmm. he was entirely made of tin, and they never touched that in the original. And it's like, no, they're very clear here. He hacked himself to pieces. Right, and I think, honestly, the few issues I have with this movie really do pertain to, like, some of the allusions they do do to the original movie. They had to pay MGM the rights to use the ruby slippers because they were silver slippers in the original book. And then also, obviously, having, like, the sort of connection of the bookending segments with Nicole Williamson and Gene Marsh returning as, you know, characters after they were in the Kansas scenes. Having those direct connections, I think, does hurt the movie slightly, especially at the time. And also, there's just certain things, like, even Adam mentioned that they kind of just brush off the side like oh yeah the psychiatrist died horribly like drowned to death in the middle of all that it's the one-off line that like piper laurie's just like oh dorothy this guy died horribly but we're a family again right it's it's a bit weird it's a bit on this it is and also well maybe for me this movie would have been a little bit better if it was indeed silver slippers because i think the ruby slippers are probably the biggest tie-in to the original where you're like oh no it's the same it's a sequel so if they would have just went with the silver slippers, like, no, this is a completely new Oz. I think that would have worked in their advantage. People get hung up about the ruby slippers. I don't get it. It's literally a color change. That's it. Because I just... it's so iconic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I know it's iconic, that. but I don't yeah. see how just the shoes alone won't make you change the mind about a film. What I'm saying is this movie might have had a better chance for people like me at the time. That one iconic thing, I think that would have changed people's ideas that it's a sequel. That they would have thought, oh no, this is just a new interpretation. I, I think my, my big thing really is just more that other movies that have come out that have tried to play on Oz have been far more guilty of that. I think it's somewhat of a problem with this movie, but then when you get to... Oz the Great and Powerful, where they went oh, as God. legally far as they could to reference oh. the MGM movie. <laughs> and it's yeah. way worse. And it went oh. so against the actual characters. Because here's the thing. The wizard is not a good man. The wizard is a piece of shit. But, but, Caitlin, James Franco played him. He's not bad at all, right? Right. Right, nothing's bad about him at all, no. Because <laughs> literally, like, in the books, he's actually the one that gives Ozma to Mombi. He's like, oh, I've taken over Oz. Let's make sure this little girl well, can never assume far. her rightful place on the throne. But that's it, books. We're talking James Beautiful Franco. It's also kind of an issue to a certain extent with, like, the Wicked musical as well. They kind of, like, they, they go far more to reference a lot of the stuff from, like, the movie necessarily than the book as well. And I think it's just the more you sort of draw yourself directly in attention with like being sort of in the line of that movie i think the worse off you are quite frankly i would love to see an oz adaptation that goes as far to the other side as possible i think this one mostly Uh, does that 
Yeah. Do you remember the miniseries from like Tin Man? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one was that great. One that one was great. Far off as they could. And yet actually still more faithful than most. Yeah, I think it worked. Yeah, it worked really well. Here's the thing. Most people don't like the actual books as much as they like the idea of the world. You may even mention this, Caitlin, that like I've read some like the wiki stuff about Oz. As things go on later, he L. Frank Baum started to like repeat himself a lot. Have, yeah. Like, oh look, here's uh the other scarecrow. Here's um the the lion who's doesn't want to eat kids because it's against his morality or whatever. It's like they Yeah, like literally there's a lion who wants to eat babies but doesn't because conscience. And I'm like, why even make this a point then? Doesn't that speak to all of us though? That's, no. We always try and fight to eat babies. You know, that's a good point, Adam. We all always. fight that. But yeah, no, there's always fight. some kind of like scarecrow or a, a, a kind of like doll figure yeah. or some tin yeah. character, all those. It starts to repeat itself. And even with the girls, it starts to repeat itself. Like you've got Ozma. She's the ruler, but she is a lot like Dorothy in a way. You do kind of realize... Oz, when L. Frank Baum wrote them, they were sort of the first truly sort of like American based fairy tale fantasy stories when they came out, like in the late 1800s. They were because all other things were like influenced by, you know, Germanic or British or any number of other like European fairy tales. This was like the first American one, yeah. Right, because you have like a tin woodsman, you have a scarecrow, even a lion. Like those feel more like sort of American based ideas of like what a fantastical world could be. And I think that that even comes across, I think, to a certain extent in this movie, where you do have sort of like, it, weirdly coming out in the 80s, this might be a bit sweaty, but I would argue it kind of even has some extensive looks at like sort of the post, like the, the Reagan era 80s nightmare scenarios. And not to mention, we're, we're also just in the middle of like Cold War shit, all this other stuff. You can yeah. kind of feel that, I think, in you this movie. You can a little bit. Like a bit of that zeitgeisty stuff influences here in terms of especially, like I said, Oz is a complete nightmare wasteland post-apocalypse. Part of the reason Oz was this way in this movie is, like I said before, it was literally a combination of two books. You had The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. Marvelous Land of Oz has the actual Mombi who's just kind of a regular witch who's turned Ozma into a boy named Tip and is basically hiding him, so her, so they can't become queen. Because this is a part human, part fairy child who could take over Oz and rightfully rule the land. And then you've got Ozma of Oz, which funnily enough is called Ozma of Oz, but this one's more Ozma's story. It's weird. Uh, And it's actually about the land of Eve, which is a neighboring kingdom of Oz that isn't anywhere near as powerful or as magical. And that's where you get Princess uh, Lagwadir, who's the one that switches heads. And literally, Princess Mommy is a mishmash of the witch and the Princess Lagwadir. And the reason it's kind of post-apocalyptic is because it's more based on the land of Eve than the actual land of Oz. Right, but you would agree this sort of like streamlines a lot of sort of like the weirdness of those plots and actually makes them into a piece of story. It really does. This is probably one of the best ways you could make a book into a movie that's a little bit different while still remaining faithful to the source material at heart. 
Right, yeah, and I think the biggest thing that sort of carries over that I really like about it, not just, like, obviously the books that we're talking about, but even with the movies, these characters, when you really look at the face of it, have such tragic, interesting backstories. But oh, yeah. they sort of have this weird kind of gumption to keep going on. Not to specifically point out the gump, but more about some of these other, like, uh, Jack, I love Jack Bumpkinhead is such a, I think, very endearingly naive, tragic character, which yeah. is like, oh, hey, I'm basically a newborn and I've been stuck up here and broken apart and I'm waiting for my mom. Are you my mom? Can you be my mom? <laughs> That's so fucking sad. But at the same yeah. time, he just wants to help out, even though he is kind of a novice, kind of awkward. And I think that bounces off pretty well off, like, TikTok, who's a lot more sort of, like, they're, like, clockwork precision type. And then the gump who's like, I'm here to have fun. I'm alive now. I guess. <laughs> yeah, or Belina, who's just like, Lord, this mess. <laughs> but it's still better than Kansas. Let's go. It, it does a great job, like, having all these characters in a group play off of each other. That's always what I loved about, especially the original Wizard of Oz movie, is I love that group dynamic those characters interacting together. They all have distinctive personalities and they bounce off each other so well. Yeah, because there's even a scene where, like, they have to interact without Dorothy when they're trying to build the gump and TikTok's mind has gone. Because literally with TikTok, you've got to wind him up. You've got to wind up his thinking, you've got to wind up his action, and you've got to wind up his speech. Dorothy forgot to wound up his thinking, and during the building of TikTok, he kind of goes cuckoo kachoo. Yeah, I, I and just Belina and Jack bouncing off of each other because Jack's just obeying TikTok, and TikTok said tie up Jack and tie Jack's feet together, and Jack's like tie my feet together, and he's like what what? Right, which and is something you're definitely missing from a lot of the later as adaptations. Just don't quite have that. Yeah, they don't have that feeling of camaraderie. No, it, it becomes so much where you focus so much more on, like, um, Elphaba in Wicked, which I love Wicked, but I think they just focus so way too much on her character and her interaction with Glinda, and not so much on, like, the side periphery characters have moments, but they do, there isn't really, like, a group yeah. coming together kind of dynamic, or especially Oz is so guilty of that, the great and powerful, where it's I just like... I hate that movie... Where it's, it's so much just like, so oh, it's much. it's the James Franco, like, smiling like a stoner in your face, and all the Witches of Oz are instantly transfixed by him, and completely battle against each other, just over this dude who I don't really get much of a sense of. And then you got, like, hey, look, I'm Zach Braff the monkey, and I'm the China girl in the background, barely as characters. It's, it's... Yeah, the China girl in particular was a very much wasted character, because she's fun in the books. So, I, I guess we can go into our final thoughts then. Caitlin, your final thoughts on Return to Oz. My final thoughts is, this is a movie that honestly should be seen. S effects are great, acting's great, the voice acting's great, the score is phenomenal. One of my favorite scores. Yeah, David Shire's and... score, incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Really great. And just, it's such a fun film. Yeah, it will fuck you up if you're a kid, which is fine and fun. And if you could just, like, put away the fact that it's not the wonderful Wizard of Oz, I think you can find a great film to enjoy here, and personally one of my favorites of all time. Adam? Well, I felt shots fired at the end there. Um, <laughs> but No, this is just not for me, man. I don't know if it is the fact that I compare it or it's the fact that I, I just, I don't know, man. It, it, maybe I still got the childhood trauma attached to me because this movie did scare the shit out of me. 
But I, I don't know. Like I said, it's not for me, but I did sit there with my wife and my child, and they both thoroughly enjoyed watching it. I just, I, I, it's not for me. Was your kid scared by it at all? Let's put it this way. She didn't say she was scared until we asked if she was scared. So I don't think so. Once we put the thought into her head, then she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> but I, I don't think so. But then again, she's three and a half. She has no idea what decapitation is. A couple times she did get emotional. Like, well, right off the bat where they're taking Dorothy to the insane asylum and Toto's chasing. She's like, no, stay here. There was an audible. Oh, no. You know, that type of thing. So I got I got torn up with that one, too. Even now, it's just like, oh, no, Toto wants to follow her, and she wants Toto, but she can't, and it sucks. And I love later on, they ask her, like, oh, you can go back to Toto. Oh, yeah, I, I forgot about Toto. Like, you went on a whole adventure with Toto, and you fucking forgot about yeah. him. A huge adventure, nonetheless. <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's interesting, because I, I, like you, Adam, grew up loving that original Wonderful Wizard of Oz movie. I think it's a you know an American classic, great example of like why i love musicals why i love sort of like ensemble comedy why i am sort of entranced by the idea of especially of like this kind of fantasy that doesn't talk down to kids it has a kid story with like a lot of charm a lot of whimsy to it but also when things get dark and serious in the wonderful wizard of oz it is really sincere like there's that point where the wicked witch is like hey at the end when this hourglass runs out i'm gonna kill you Basically, they don't outright say that, but that's what it's implied, and I think that's yeah, yeah, that's that's what's very much implied, and I think that carries over into this movie at the same time. That sort of lack of hesitation to present dark material to children, but still at the same time keep the fun and charm of these characters interacting together, and that create creativity and that whimsy that's going on through all the special effects stuff. And a, a lot of the interactions with the characters, and I would personally say for Bulk doing a pretty great job at displaying a very introverted child who keeps to herself a lot when she's at home, and throughout this movie has to find that journey of, like, it is scary to have adult responsibilities, it is scary to have to handle scary, big, oppressive forces that might come your way, but if you have friends that you can be endeared to, that really care about you, then you should keep going, you should try and save them, you shouldn't abandon them, you should try and help out and use your own brains and courage and heart maybe to actually help the people out who are around you who ha- would share the same responsibility and affection for you at the same time. And I think Return to Oz carries it over wonderfully and I would wish more adaptations would take from this of especially the Oz books. I think we could have a really great especially like sort of TV series or film adaptation that could take a lot of those lessons from both this movie and the original one and at the same time create something new out of L. Frank Baum's characters. I think you could really see something out of that. Uh, But that is the end of our discussion on our two fantasy films for the evening. Um, Before we do our picking for next week, at the very end of this episode, we both, Adam and I, are just waiting to do the picking. Uh, We want to go ahead and read some feedback. Uh, Every single week on Mondays, we ask you at DEDB pod on Twitter and Facebook about, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite examples of this particular topic that we're doing? And so, uh, first up, uh, we got some uh, friends of the show who have been on previously. Uh, we have Scott Crawford, 
who says, um, I just watched a ton of fantasy films a few months back and came across some amazing films, but I also found some turds, lol. Uh, for the best, I would have to go with Excalibur from 1981, and for the worst, I would have to say Deathstalker 2. I just hated the fuck out of that movie and just wanted to punch the main guy who played Deathstalker right in the face. Uh, Dan Chambos, uh, who was on our fantasy films episode previously, keep in mind everybody, says, uh, I don't watch a lot of fantasy, but Flash Gordon would be the closest... <laughs> Oh, Dan. Oh, Dan. On our previous fantasy episode, I don't watch fantasy. Crystal Chambers says, uh, Legend was really good. Bill Gabriel says, uh, any of the Sinbad or Greek mythology stuff from Ray Harryhausen? Uh, James Rodriguez says, Pan's Labyrinth is one of my all-time favorites, but the idea of me not mentioning The Princess Bride? Inconceivable! Uh, Warcraft was a disappointment for me, not from playing the games, but from enjoying Duncan Jones' filmography. Let's not even mention the disastrous Bright... And then Rachel Hillis says, uh, favorites, all the Lord of the Rings movies, all the Harry Potter movies, Shape of Water, uh, in the sense that it's a romantic fantasy, uh, Life of Pi, Curse of the Black Pearl, uh, Spirited Away, and The Princess Bride. I'm a fan of the genre, as you can tell. Uh, least favorites would be the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, Bridge of Terabithia, Dracula Untold, and the Clash of the Titans remake. Uh, but Caitlin, any of those bounce out to you? Any of those your favorites, or maybe some that weren't mentioned in there? Uh, Princess Bride is definitely a favorite, obviously, because who doesn't like the Princess Bride? A couple that weren't mentioned for me that I really like, uh, Labyrinth, the animated Hobbit movie. That one's still a favorite. And just honestly, uh, the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Not not a Harry Potter fan, Adam? No, I, I... Let's put it this way. I'm not against Harry Potter. I've seen... If I haven't seen them all, I've seen most of them. I like the movies. I enjoy them. But i kind of forgotten them. Um, I But I'm not against watching them. I, I think they're really well done. Plus, I mean, fucking Alan Rickman and anything, I'm down to watch it. But, yeah, dude, Princess Bride, I mean, is there a better movie than Princess Bride? I mean, Princess Bride is one of the greatest movies of all time. And I would kind of argue against all of the Lord of the Rings films. I think you have one fantastic one in the original trilogy, and then two pretty good movies. Have Have you seen the animated one? Yes, by ba- uh, Bakshi. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the one I particularly mentioned. I think it's great. No, it's fantastic. But, of course, I mean, I got to give, I got we got to bring it up, uh, Ray Harryhausen, some of the greatest if not the greatest stop motion animation ever put on Sally Lloyd I mean that guy was a master of the craft yeah, particularly uh, the voyage of Sinbad with the skeletons was that voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts no you're right that's Jason and the Argonauts yes. no Jason and the Argonauts he also did do the original Clash of the Titans I mean Harryhausen was sure. a master which right. is which Clash of the Titans I didn't mind the remake of Clash of Titans. It's not good, but it's just entertainment for entertainment's sake. Right. What's weirdly interesting is that the Clash of the Titans 81 and the 2010 one are sort of like exact inverses for me, where Mm -hmm. with the original, like the stop motion effect stuff is amazing and all the humans look bored versus the human stuff is actually kind of interesting in the 2010 movie and the effects are pretty soulless and garbage <laughs> yeah i can agree with that i mean case in point medusa yeah medusa is probably the biggest example she looks fantastic in the harry hamlin one the original 
But then the new one, you're like, this is just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, like, horror is probably one of the biggest genres where there's just so much crap. And then there is a lot of good, too. I think with fantasy movies, there's more crap than good. But at the same time, you also get a lot of gems. Like, you know, we've mentioned, uh, we've discussed here at Gilliam previously, Time mm. Bandits and Baron Munchaz, and I love. I love yeah, those are great. Yeah. I like Ice Pirates, for God's sake. That I'm not going to go with you on. <laughs> you, you go on that bridge alone. <laughs> you walk that plank. <laughs> I like Beastmaster. I remember Beastmaster because, this is funny, the first time I ever saw Beastmaster was I was slipping through channels and I stumbled upon Telemundo at the bit, and, yes. the, and it was the dubbed bit uh, where Beastmaster is transposed from his mother's womb to the cow womb, and yeah, I was incredibly confused, especially because they didn't understand a lick of what was going on. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. no. Of course not. Yeah, El Nino es pollo. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yep. Literally what happened. No, I mean, I bought a ferret because of Beastmaster. I regretted it instantly, but I bought a ferret because of Beastmaster. It's almost like the 80s captured it, and then everything since has been kind of bad. I'm talking sword and sorcery fantasy. Except for, like, Lord of the Rings, of course. But, like, the Conan remake? Mm-hmm. What a soulless piece of shit that was. I'm not even a big and, fan of 300, honestly. I like 300 for what it is. I find entertainment out of it, but it's not a good movie. And by the way, I don't hate Bright. Yeah, you you keep not hating that. <laughs> I will say we kind of have lost like the sword and sorcery films, but we have seen this explosion of D and D and sword and sorcery stories. Period. Like that's become such a big thing lately. Well, yeah, D and, as D&D has become a lot more popular, you have gotten a lot yeah. of sort of movies that aren't necessarily direct adaptations, but kind of take off mm-hmm. some of those, like, storytelling elements, for sure. And, I mean, it was referenced here, I know, Caitlin, you you mentioned to me previously, like, uh, Guillermo del Toro, obviously, is keeping fantasy alive with, like, Pan's Labyrinth oh, my and all this God, other yes. stuff. Uh, sure. Studio Ghibli, obviously, has, True. like, a bunch of fantasy lineups. Like, the animation fantasy is alive and well, in particular. Because we've got, like, we mentioned, like, stop-motion and stuff like that. We like, uh, they're amazing. They did like Kubo, mm-hmm. Coraline, some really hold up, hold up a little bit on that. Yeah, we put a pin in that, Caitlin, because that'll yeah. ref- that'll uh, come up with our picking at the end of the episode. Um, so let's uh, go ahead and go through our thank yous then. Uh, thank you to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for our art for the show. Uh, she accepts commissions at fiverrwith2rs.com slash eescarda. And of course, we want to thank Caitlin Turner for coming on. Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It and, was a pleasure. So, all right. Uh, you can also find us, of course, on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, where, like I said, we'll throw up that feeler asking for your favorites and least favorites for um, a topic that we're doing. Uh, right now, you'll have our next episode's topic up there that you can go ahead and comment on and please and we'll share it on the show for sure like we did earlier um and you can also email us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com all spelled out um also you can follow my own individual account at not the who's tommy on twitter and uh, you can also find my writings at marianitomas.wordpress.com and adam usually i know with some stupid bullshit because you don't have any kind of actual social media that's presence, true that's but true but you have actually something to promote 
right now, don't you? You're on another show? Yes, I'm going to be on the next episode of the Horror Returns podcast, uh, where we'll be covering both the original and the remake of Pet Cemetery. Uh, Horror Returns, obviously, is led by a past guest on the show, uh, Lance Langford. And I would just like to add that I am so honored to be on a show with podcasting giants like Brian Stitcher and then Phil and then fucking Lance. I, I mean, I guess if you could throw him in there. I mean, he's just fucking Lance. But yeah, I'm gonna, I'm actually branching out a little bit. I'm terrified. I'm scared. And I sleep in the fetal position uh, thinking about it. I mean, Adam, you have an out. You can go to the Horror Returns if you want, Adam. I'm actually pretty excited because I don't have to fucking defend my opinions for once. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell how much uh, love and friendship that we have here on the show. If you want that to keep on flourishing, just uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and any other place where we might be. We're on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, all those. And uh, just rate, review, and subscribe us on there as well so we can give the show more visibility. Yeah, next episode is going to be the last one anyway, so it don't matter. Well, I mean, it, it might be appropriate <laughs> uh, given that, uh, Adam, we're about to hit 50 episodes of which is insane thomas we have covered almost 100 movies on this show so it has almost been a year yep uh we'll be doing something very special for uh, a year so stay tuned in a couple episodes for that but now uh, for our 50th episode we're gonna do something in honor of uh, we were mentioning stop motion earlier Kaylin, with your unintentional segue because uh you mentioned Leica. we're doing this in honor of missing link is uh, going to be coming out, um, actually, this week we're posting this particular episode, but, it, you know, we'll be doing it the Monday after, it's fine. But I'm very excited for that. I love Leica and what they do. Oh, everything they've done. Yep. They, they do a really great job. Interestingly, I found out uh, the guy who created Leica, Travis Knight, um, who also directed Bumblebee, uh, his dad is the guy who created Nike. So that's why, yep. even though Leica might have movies that don't do very well, uh, they'll never really be able to stop making movies. I, I mean, I don't know, dude. Does Nike have that much money? Of course they do. This fucking guy. But you know what? Good for Listen, him. Listen, I will you know, buy Nike shoes just to support Leica. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Dress me head to toe in Nike, like, fucking track suits. If it means I get more Kubo. Right, of course. Uh, but now we have to do our picking where, for those of you who might be new, uh, at the end of every episode, we each have two good and two bad movies, uh, depending on whichever quality. Adam has the two good movies, which I don't know his two choices, and I have two bad movies that Adam's not quite sure of. And keep in mind, for this, uh, we did open up to, at least if it's a movie that has one major stop-motion element, it could be eligible. Um, like, for example, Return to Oz would have been eligible for this, for this definitely. Since yeah, I didn't go that stuff. route. I didn't right. put this out. Well, because plenty of really great stop motion movies. Right, exactly. It's very hard to pick bad ones, so I uh, I felt for you on this one. Right. Uh, but I've got two, and you've got two, and we've each just assigned the number between 1 and 10 for both those. And Now, uh, usually we would each pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to see which good and bad movie we get at random, but when we have a guest like Caitlin here, Caitlin gets to do that herself. So, Caitlin, number between 1 and 10 for Adam's good movies. Three. At number two, I have the fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, great. I'm so happy. <laughs> I know. It's such a good movie. I'm so and happy I eight. could just cuss. Oh, cuss. At number eight, I have Mad Monster Party. Oh, wow. That's a great choice. That's an underrated one. Oh, thanks, buddy. 
Yeah, the only Rankin-Bass feature film presented in actual theaters, yeah. But now, Caitlin, my two bad choices. Oh, I feel bad about this, but we're going to go seven. Okay. So at number seven, I have a film with one major stop-motion character uh, that's mostly live-action, but it is directed by someone known for his stop-motion. I have 2001 Henry Selleck's Monkey Bone. I'm so sorry. Oh my god. I have to watch a Chris Tan and Brendan Fraser vehicle? (laughs) You son of a bitch. This is the second Brendan Fraser fucking lead movie we've covered on the show. Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. Well, I think I have an aneurysm. Well, to be fair, um, on the opposite spectrum, um, at number 10, I had one that. I've heard is arguably even worse than Monkey Bone. Um, it is a fully stop motion animated movie, but I've heard it's quite crassly garbage. Hell and Back from 2015. Oh, thank God. Okay, yeah. yep, Monkey Bone, I'll take it. <laughs> yep, I've seen Hell and Back. Thank okay, yeah, God. yeah. So I, I can honestly safely assure that Monkey Bone is the better of those two movies. Oh. Ooh. Fantastic well. Mr. Fox and Monkey Bone. What the fuck? <laughs> All right. <laughs> This will definitely be an interesting double feature then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you, Caitlin, for coming on and doing that picking for us. And 24 frames per second. We moved her incrementally to do that, folks. Yeah, it took a long time. Yep. Took at least be two fair. days to animate. To be fair, mm-hmm. it's faster than I usually move. <laughs> Indeed. And on that note, we are going to escape to our own Land of Oz for now and come back next time. But until then... Farewell, everybody. Long live the Tooch!